Here's your host, Alex Garrett. And welcome back inside to Alex Garrett Podcasting. I know we do some sports, we do some adaptability, and we also do some politics because I do believe that with sports, with adapting, we are also taxpayers. Uh, Athletes are taxpayers. People with disabilities are taxpayers. And so all of us have to worry about our taxes and where our money is being spent. Now, do I believe that a $3.1 trillion infrastructure plan is worth our taxpaying dollars? Hell no. And I think someone that agrees with me is Nick Loris. He's the vice president of policy for C3 Solutions, which is a conservative coalition for climate solutions. Nick, are taxpayer dollars going to be useful in this $3.1 trillion package? I want to start right there. Yeah, not by any means. I'm sure a few of them will. Uh, but when you start summing up that amount of money, it, it really just becomes monopoly money. And so much of that money is going to be spent on uh, activities that aren't related to infrastructure. Uh, you're talking about uh, universal pre-K. Uh, you're talking about huge spending initiatives on uh, climate initiatives. You're talking about uh, remaking the entire electricity grid with this program called the Clean uh, Energy uh, Payments Program. Uh, there's all sorts of policies here uh, that would lead to a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse. Absolutely. And I, I want to talk to you because you, you seem to be pinpointing Joe Manchin here. I feel like everybody is. D.C. Examiner article calling him the captain of the Senate. Why is he the pivotal person here? Why isn't the majority leader Schumer or even minority McConnell? Why does it fall on his shoulders? And, and where do you see him going with all of this? Yeah, to, to move through with a reconciliation package, uh, you only need uh, 51 votes. And with the Senate lost 50-50, uh, you know, Senator Manchin, a, a Democrat from West Virginia, uh, has a lot of interest in protecting uh the energy sources in his state, primarily coal, but also natural gas. Uh, and he's also uh, been one of kind of the traditional blue dog Democrats that's been concerned uh, about the federal debt and the uh, amount uh, that we're passing on to our grandchildren that we're going to have to uh, eventually pay down. And so he was on board with a 1.2 bipartisan infrastructure plan. Um, but what you're seeing is uh, a lot of the House Democrats want to package that $1.2 trillion infrastructure plan with a 3.5 reconciliation package. So the, the true price tag, if this all actually came together the way the Democrats wanted, would be $4.7 trillion. Uh, and he's simply saying that's too much. And he's worried about the, both the taxpayers, uh, but also the energy consumers, not just in his state, but across the country. Well, I want to talk about that because I think it's kind of interesting. I'm sure someone listening may be like, there's a coalition on the conservative side for climate solutions. I thought the conservatives hated climate change. But the reality is we all want solutions to this problem. So where does C3 fall on all of this? And uh, what are the solutions that you guys have in mind? Yeah, it's a great point. You know, we certainly believe that the climate is changing, that man-made emissions are uh, driving that warming, and that there are risks. Uh, to climate change, and we want to reduce those risks through reducing greenhouse gas emissions and through helping to adapt to a change in climate through more resilient and reliable infrastructure. And, you know, the best way to um, reduce greenhouse gas emissions is not to raise the price of uh, traditional energy sources, but to 
reduce the cost of new up-and-coming energy sources. And, and we've seen the cost of renewables fall dramatically. Uh, there's a lot of potential for small modular nuclear reactors. Uh, there's good policies that could lead to better forest management that would reduce the risk of wildfires, which uh, is not only devastating to communities, but also spews a lot of CO2 and other pollutants into the atmosphere. So you know, we are really taking uh, what we think is a, a pragmatic approach uh, to the climate issue that will help accelerate innovation, that will reduce the cost of alternative energy sources, and that will make it more enticing for the rest of the world to pursue those alternative energy sources, too, because we have to understand that this is a, a global problem. And Nick, a, though, a, how, a how do we go from – how did Texas become the third most oil-rich in the world? I mean, that's one of our states of the United States, third on that list, and, and I feel like they've dropped somewhat with the Biden policy, but how were they able to do that, and can we get more states on board like that doing the internal uh, energy sources? Yeah, yeah, it's really through competitive markets. You know, the reason the United States has been an energy powerhouse but also has been a global leader in greenhouse gas emissions reductions is through free enterprise and free competitive markets. And so, you know, Texas is a huge oil and gas producer, but it's also a huge wind producer. Uh, if it was uh, 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 its own country, it would be the fifth largest wind producer in the world. Uh, and so, we're seeing a lot of innovations happening in the energy sector. You know, the fracking boom is the biggest uh, contributor to reductions in emissions uh, in the energy sector uh, over the past 15 to 20 years. And yet it's kept energy prices reliable and affordable. Uh, and it's also created a whole lot of jobs in the process. And so there's a lot of good policies that can help accelerate that. And it can be a win for the economy and a win for the environment. All right, you talk about affordable. You want to talk about uh, great alternatives. See, I'm on the verge of saying, and I've always been a fan of fracking, and is that wrong to be a fan of fracking, or is that proven to be a successful, safe way to do things? Yeah, it's proven to be a successful, safe way to do things. You know, the, the process of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling really isn't anything new. It's something we've been doing uh, really since the 50s and 60s. It's just that we've been able to really master it. And, and again, the biggest reason that we've displaced coal in our electricity mix uh, about a decade ago, coal provided 50% of our electricity generation, and now that's down to 25%, and that's largely because of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling. And, again, if you look at the boom in all of the states and, you know, the Pennsylvanias and the Texases and the North Dakotas of the world, they understand they want to protect their own environment and make sure it's done safely, but they also understand that it's a, a huge economic boon to these states and counties, uh, and it's dramatically lowered the energy prices. So even if you're not in an energy-producing state, we're all reaping the benefits because of lower natural gas prices, lower electricity prices. I know prices at the pump are higher right now, but they would be even higher if we didn't have all of this domestic oil production. All right, you talk about policy, and, and poli politicians are very funny when it comes to coal miners, aren't they? One, one minute they say, we love you guys. Next minute they say, we don't want you guys. So I, I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts on the politicians' view on climate change? Do you feel like they literally change their own views as they're talking about this? Yeah, they change their views. They change uh, depending on which way the wind is blowing, and they also change based on which political interests 
they're representing, and all of this factors into climate policy that tends not to be good for the taxpayer. It tends not to be good for the energy consumer, uh, but it also generally doesn't have the uh, great impact of uh, reducing emissions and actually meaning anything to reduce the risks of climate change. And we've seen policies like shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline, for instance, that would have uh, transported oil from Canada down to Gulf Coast refineries. Uh, Now that we don't have that pipeline, we're moving more oil by rail car and by truck, uh, which is more emissions intense than it carrying by pipeline. And so there's a lot of unintended consequences to these policies when they say they care about the environment and they care about climate change, but they don't necessarily think through all of the trade-offs that exist when they make these policy decisions and the unintended economic and environmental consequences of these decisions. Do you guys guys look at the regulations? Obviously, you do at C3 Solutions, but what I mean is, do you notice that it seems like they just want to tax everybody on the climate, you know, to try and combat the climate? I feel like it's a tax-getting scheme rather than a climate-fixing scheme. (laughs) Yeah, it's a... It tends to be a revenue-making scheme and a money-making scheme, and, you know, they, they say they want the polluters to pay, but then it's these uh, emissions emitters, uh, whether that's an energy company or, or otherwise, that pass those costs on to consumers. And, and the reality is uh, all that does is uh, make people pay more for energy prices, uh, you know, and they don't really reduce their consumption all that much because we need energy every single day. Uh, and so I think you're exactly right. As these regulations and these taxes tend to simply just increase costs to the taxpayers, to energy consumers for negligible climate benefits. And that's why our model is really focused on accelerating innovation to make it in the self-interest of energy companies, of energy consumers to to choose cheaper, cleaner alternatives. And I think that's the true way you'll get to a more impacts in terms of reducing emissions. Well, you, you do say that you have plans, so take, give us a little inside look. What is C3 Solutions really working on at the boardroom table, if you will? Yeah, uh, you know, I, it's really a, a little bit of everything, to be honest with you, Alex, yeah, because I think the Biden approach to climate policy has been this whole-of-government approach. And, 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 you know, we kind of flipped the script on that, and we, we really think of it as a, a whole-of-market solution and approach. And so we want good tax policy, you know, policy that is technology neutral um, across the board, but something like immediate expensing, which allows businesses to deduct their costs in the year that they're incurred rather than depreciate them over time. That's something that encourages investments in energy efficient technologies, in alternative energy sources. Uh, So good tax policy can lead to good economic and environmental outcomes. I mentioned wildfire management uh, is certainly one. You know, clean free trade is something, too. You know, as you mentioned, you know, we've been a, a leader in energy production and we should be able to export that energy. Uh, we should be able to export those technologies overseas uh, and then really going after uh, the regulatory apparatus that has obstructed all forms of clean energy development, as well as traditional traditional energy development. You know, it, it's very frustrating when you're trying to build a solar array or a small modular nuclear reactor and you were just 
hamstrung in years of regulatory red tape or litigation. And so we want to make sure that these projects are safely built, of course, and we want to make sure that local communities are heard uh, where these projects are being built. But at the same time, uh, if we can't build anything here, whether that's a a wind turbine or a new high-voltage transmission line, we're not going to make any meaningful progress in making any type of energy transition. Well, you know, I'm just thinking, with all these policy plans you guys have, do you have the ear of the politicians? Would you consider yourself lobbyists also? Do you do you try and get your thoughts into Washington's, you know, vein? Yeah, so we, we are, you know, what's known as a 501c3. So we are, uh, you know, a, a public policy think tank. So we're not lobbyists. Uh, you know, we consider ourselves policy educators. And, and yeah, we want to talk to both Republicans and Democrats, as well as people within the administration, uh, and, you know, have been doing so, you know, since C3 was founded uh, just about a year ago. And we want to educate them on the policies that we think are, are good ideas and voice concerns about the policies we think are, are bad ideas. Uh, you know, we don't fully endorse specific pieces of legislation because that dabbles into the idea of lobbying. Uh, but we certainly want to educate members of Congress and their staffers on what we think is the best path forward to uh, a strong, healthy economy and a strong, healthy environment. So, Joe Manchin, I'm going to tag you, Senator Manchin. If you listen to this, give them a call. They might want to talk to you about all of this, right? Yeah, absolutely. We're happy to talk to Senator Manchin and his staff anytime. And, uh, you know, I, you know, we're pleased that he's voicing a lot of the concerns that he is, both about the uh, just egregious amount of taxpayer spending that would be entailed in the reconciliation package, but also good alternative path forward, because I know he cares about West Virginians in the country. He cares about taxpayers, but he also cares about the environment and climate change. And so you know, he uh, can be a really good brand ambassador for all of these things and, and really how, how the movement and what public policy should look like. All right. Uh, one thing that I really don't think is a myth, but people try and discredit is the that they tax rainwater, that Democratic states tax rainwater because of the drainage and the suit. Is that true? Is there some tax going on when you don't properly drain your house or, or you know, the drainage system and whatnot? You, you know, there, there are regulations in place to make sure that poli- uh, streams and lakes and, and bodies of water aren't being polluted. So, you know, it, it really depends on uh, the, the situation is largely probably not the case, uh, you know, that there there may be instances, one-off instances where it, it has occurred. But, you know, if you if your home is kind of just operating normally, um, even under, you know, some sort of heavy rainfall, you know, I, I, it's highly doubtful uh, that you would be taxed in, in, in any meaningful way. All right. I've got to ask you this because I know this is around the time that President Biden did his speech yesterday. So... When he says climate change is the existential threat, is the threat of the century, you know, those type of, of things. He called it a confection, a confection point also. Do you agree with him? I've always thought terrorism would be first over climate change, but maybe at C3 Solutions you do see that as the existential threat. I'm not sure. No, no in, in fact, if you look at the, the main body of climate research, I think there's a reason for optimism that the most extreme climate scenarios are uh, becoming increasingly unlikely to become reality, um, partly because we've shifted off of coal in places like the United States. Uh, but these really doomsday climate scenarios, uh, they are based on projections that are almost borderline impossible. You know, they, it's based on 
uh, low amounts of technology innovation, uh, extremely high amounts of population growth, you know, using every ounce of coal that we have on this planet. Uh, and that's not to dismiss the concerns of climate change. We, we certainly believe that there are risks to climate change. And even if we hit three degrees Celsius warming rather than four or five, there are still going to be costs to the planet. We want to mitigate and reduce those costs. But I, you know, I, I worry that some of this climate catastrophism is, one, not based in the actual body of climate literature from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, but it kind of scares people into situations that are unlikely to become true and also kind of creates this defeatist uh, attitude. You know, I'm a climate optimist. I think we can really reduce those risks in a meaningful way because we have so much climate entrepreneurship in this country and around the world. And sometimes this doomsday messaging creates this defeatist attitude, and I don't think it's very helpful. I was going to say, did you, uh, I feel like those into the climate may have seen it from the liberal side at first, then maybe, maybe have changed. What was your view and why did you get into this, Nick? Yeah, you know, I, I honestly evolved on the issue myself. You know, I thought there were, you know, there's a lot of natural variability in the climate. The climate's been changing, you know, obviously for millions of years before humans even stepped foot on this planet. Uh, but then, you know, you look at that uh, mainstream body of literature that I said, and, you know, climatologists, you know, they do a, lot, a real, really, really good job, especially with, you know, some of this retrospective analysis as to how and why the climate's changed. And, you know, we can't rely on climate models for everything, but at the same time, um, they can be a, a good parameter for where we may be heading. And just because there's uncertainty in the climate doesn't mean that's a, an excuse not to act. And so, you know, I think it's been a combination of looking at the science, understanding public policy, making sure that we want to keep our uh, economy strong and healthy, but also uh, protect this planet for current and future generations. And so, you know, I think all, all sorts of uh, environmental policies are a, a worthy cause of taking on. And why does it get so screwed up then? We all want to protect the climate, the environment, and God's, you know, creation. I, I go that route too. But I just feel like on the left, it's so more, much more insane than, than those on the right. I mean, they, they want to do more than just protect. They want to sort of grab at it too, right? Yeah, and I think that's a little bit of my frustration, too, is if you if you don't take the most extreme position, you're somehow then not an environmentalist or a conservationist. And, you know, I grew up hiking and camping and, and, and you know, love the outdoors and, and want to protect it again for future generations. Uh, but I, I sometimes think that, you know, my friends on the left fail to see, you know, what those trade-offs look like if we shut down all sorts of energy production, if we use... Um, you know, trillions of dollars of taxpayer resources to pay for everything. And they also tend to ignore that this is a, a global issue. You know, right now, China emits more than the rest of the developed world combined and, and accounts for more than a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and so even if we reach net zero GHG uh, by 2050, uh, it, would, it would be really climatically meaningless. You're talking about a change in the Earth's temperature that would be almost too small to even measure. So sometimes I think, again, my friends on the left failed to kind of see the benefits and, and costs of some of their policies. And, uh, you know, and then it gets into, you know, more picking winners and losers, more kind of cronyism and corporate welfare. A lot of the things that they rail against, especially corporate welfare, but some of their policies then tend to enable it. Absolutely. All right. So a couple of thoughts here. Um, climate Accord, are we back in that? Is Are we back in the Paris Climate Accord? 
We are back in the Paris Climate Accord. In fact, uh, there's a, a, they do a yearly conference, and the next one's coming up uh, in November. Uh, in uh, November, I believe it's 4th through 14th uh, is the next climate conference. So right now it's, it's non-binding, um, and there's no repercussions for failing to meet your climate target as part of the Paris Climate Agreement, which most countries, because it's non-binding, uh, that means they're, they aren't meeting their, their targets because it means hard decisions about taxes and regulations and subsidies. Um, but we are back in it. And we are paying the most in it, right? Yeah, that's right. And that's a, you know, President Biden mentioned yesterday that he wants to increase funding for it um, even more so. Uh, you know, the, the target for that uh, agreement was $100 billion per year, both in public spending but also private spending. Uh, and so far, the United States has been paying the lion's share. Crazy. That that just is crazy. And then the EPA, I mean, there was some talk about getting rid of it. I, I don't know. Is this a private sector issue more than a governmental agency issue to tackle? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's a little bit of both. And you know, I think that there's a real good reason to devolve a lot of environmental protections and regulations down to the state and local level, because those are the people who are closest to the situation. And so they have the, the best understanding of and they both understand the risks of uh, inaction, but the liabilities uh, environmentally of inaction. And so I think there's a lot of things we could devolve down to the state when it comes to uh, an issue like climate change, because it is a global issue, I do think that there's a role for the federal government. I think there's a role for the federal government to spend on research and development on a, a wide range of, uh, you know, chemistry and physics and, and basic sciences that could help uh, create en energy innovation, uh, you know, out of our you know government national lab system. So I do think that there's a role. Uh, and I think that there's a role for the United States to play internationally as well. But I think global leadership, again, comes from you know, demonstrating that free competitive markets have been a, a leader in emissions reductions, not policies focused on mandates, subsidies and regulations. All right. So COVID-19, um, did that affect, did that change the climate? Did the climate cause COVID to spread? Like, is there any connection there? Yeah, it really depends. You know, I think that there's been some you know, preliminary studies out there that have um, attributed the, the spread of COVID um, in certain areas, depending on temperature changes uh, in certain areas. It's, it's hard to attribute all of that to anthropogenic warming in, in just one year. Um, you know, I will say that, you know, we did see a significant amount of GHG greenhouse gas emissions reductions. Uh, in the past year uh, around the world, and that was largely because, you know, the world was shut down. And so I think it, it really speaks to how reliant we are on energy to power the global economy. And that's why I think we need to accelerate energy innovation, because that's not going to change anytime soon. And the, the cheaper we can make alternative forms of energy, uh, the, the more we'll actually achieve those greenhouse gas emissions goals. So, you know, COVID, I think, taught us some lessons about climate change and may have had some influence on the spread, although I would argue that it was probably pretty marginal. Well, and, and another thought on this is um, the labs. You just mentioned labs. And, I mean, to me, we have to monitor the labs closely. Do we not? I, I feel like we have to anyway. After this this was released into the world, I feel like we have to la monitor all kind of laboratories more closely. Yeah, yeah I think, you know, 
always there's more opportunity for better transparency and proper oversight. You know, I do think that the Department of Energy's national lab system is generally very good. You know, they, you know the, some of the smartest people in the world working on some really interesting issues, not just energy related, but health and, um, you know, human welfare and you know, biology. So uh, I, I understand wanting to give researchers uh, a lot of autonomy in the research agendas they pursue, but at the same time, they are still using taxpayer dollars. So you mm-hmm. certainly want uh, more accountability and oversight for how that money is being spent and what they're doing. Does C3 get into the lab? Does C3 Solutions get into the lab as well? Do you guys do experiments to figure all this out? <laughs> we don't. You know, we, we, our experimenting is putting pen to paper. Uh, you know, we, we certainly talk to the labs. I've been out to three of the Department of Energy's national lab systems um, out west in the northwest there. And, you know, they, again, they do really, really incredible work. And that better informs our um, public policy discussions and the things that we write. You know, so we like to visit, you know, uh, whether it's a wind farm or a solar array or an offshore oil rig or, you know, going down deep into a coal mine. You know, I've had the you know good fortune to do all of those things. And, and again, talking to the people who work on these projects really humanizes what the public policy impact is going to be. And I think that's critically important, you know, because you don't want to be in an ivory tower in D.C., you know, telling people how they should live their lives uh, or what should be done without truly talking to the people who this is going to impact. And climate policy is one that affects, you know, all of us, again, both as energy consumers as as well as taxpayers, but also because it's it's all of our planet. And we Mm. want to make sure that all three are taken into account. All right. Uh, President Trump kind of had that same sentiment when he said uh, these people in their air-conditioned offices are trying to rule all of us. And I kind of resonated with that but with trump do you think he did okay with this or did he have um like like i think holding saudi arabia accountable was a big deal to all of this wasn't it yeah i i I would say there were positives and negatives i think the negatives were you know dismissing the concerns of climate change you know calling climate change a hoax uh in in his Twitter thread, and then not really, you know, going back on that in any meaningful way, but also understanding that, uh, you know, the U.S. is paying the lion's share. You know, we want to hold other countries accountable, uh, especially a country like China, which has lied about its greenhouse gas emissions reporting in the past. They are building, you know, a coal-fired power plant every few days, and so there's so many problems. Uh, with somebody like China, not to mention all the human rights abuses, and we need a leader to make sure uh, we're staying strong on China. So overall, you know, I would say that there was an important uh, reform in terms of right-sizing some of the policies that had high costs and negligible environmental benefits. Uh, But at the same time, I think the messaging uh, and some of the working relationships um, with uh, the private sector with with states and communities could have been better too. All right, how did China get up to the top of the list then? Because somehow they became the leader in all of this, even while every city they have has smog all over it. Yet they're the leader in climate change. Someone explain that to me. Yeah, exactly. They're not. I mean, they're the leader in greenhouse gas emissions. They're the leader in pollution and uh, you know soil degradation, poor water quality. They're they're 
the leader in just about every bad environmental metric that you would want to have. And I think that's very problematic. And, and I think it, it speaks to the nature of the way that they do things. It's not a free enterprise system that respects the, its citizens and private property rights. It's one where you have a central government building a lot of coal-fired power plants, even if they might not need all of them, um, and not worrying about pollution. Because like you said, you know, they're really dealing with smog as an issue, which also contributes to climate change. Uh, and, you know, we have the pollution control technologies to reduce smog. You know, we, we have those uh, scrubbers here in the United States on our coal-fired power plants, yet they just choose not to use them uh, because they want to burn energy more cheaply. And it, it speaks to, again, uh, their style of government uh, versus, you know, what we've seen here in the United States and, and the developed world, uh, where you really do take environmental considerations and property rights into concern. We have a, like a, a minute and a half left. So in that minute and a half, I, I've got this question. Um, what can the voters do to make sure these plans do not happen uh, because of the cost, costliness of them? What can the voters do? Yeah, you know, I really think that you know, educating uh, oneself and, and understanding what's in the package, you know, which is a, a Herculean task, because when you're talking about spending $3.5 trillion, there's just so much being negotiated. So, you know, really trying to get a grasp on what the federal government is actually trying to spend this money on uh, is important, and then making an informed decision from there, because, you know, you know we want voters and, and we want the general public to be active in policy and, and hearing, uh, hearing uh, their voices. You know, I think district offices really understand that when uh, their districts are being heard, whether or not they think these policies are good ideas or bad ideas. So, you know, any time that the public can get involved in, in public policy from an education standpoint and from, get, you know, letting their voices be heard, you know, will – put pressure on members to make a decision one way or the other. Will Manchin stand strong on this or will he wilt? Hmm. That's a great question. I, you know, I get right now. I, I hate to make uh, any type of prognostication because it usually means the opposite is going to happen. But, you know, the way things are currently constructed, I, I think he would hold strong. It, it remains to be seen, you know, if the Democrats, you know, decide to bend towards him a little bit and reduce the, the dollar amount and maybe strip away some of these policies that would affect the uh, oil, coal, and, and natural gas industry. So it's, it really remains to be seen. Um, but as as things are currently constructed, I, I can't see him changing. Okay. And, and as, as I'm thinking about this, is this a Green New Deal in disguise? I feel like people have been labeling this as that. You know, probably not to that extent, but uh, honestly, there's a, a lot there. Um, like I said, it would kind of reimagine our electricity grid with a, a number of carrots and sticks, and so utilities would be punished um, but also subsidized. And so they're kind of buying into the idea and liking it, which, but ultimately those costs are going to be passed on to ratepayers. Uh, and it does have just about everything else, uh, you know, that uh, AOC imagined into a Green New Deal from Universal pre-K to a, a number of healthcare initiatives uh, and really everything in between. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's as uh, top-down prescriptive uh, as the Green New Deal. Uh, you know, and, and granted, that was just a concept and then a resolution, so we don't know what that have ultimately looked like, but there are a number of policies that 
really focus on just spending so much taxpayer money on uh, entrenched special interests that would benefit in the energy industry and really not uh, not allow for free competitive markets to drive energy innovation forward. All right. And so, uh, Nick Loris, thanks so much. You're the VP of Policy at C3 Solutions. Million-dollar question. How can people find out about you and what you guys offer and, and social media-wise as well? How can they find you? Yeah, we, we are the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions, uh, you know, 3csolutions.org. Uh, we also have a news mag, which is c3newsmag.org, where we aggregate a lot of great content. Uh, and write some of our own too. Um, everything from op-eds that you know see in the Hill and, and, and Forbes, um, and, and really any type of outlet that's writing about energy innovation and climate issues. And so, please check us out there because there's a lot of great content, not just from the in-house staff at C3, uh, but also a, a, a lot of smart minds who are um, writing on this issue, and also a lot of smart minds who are doing something on this issue because you know we really think these solutions uh, that will be meaningful are bottom up. Uh, and there's a lot of great climate entrepreneurs there who are, who are building and making really cool stuff that I think will have, uh, make a difference both economically and environmentally. Well, there you go. And Nick, can we follow you as well? Yeah. So my Twitter handle is, uh, an Loris. And, um, uh, again, I write a lot for C3, but also other outlets. Um, please, uh, give me a follow, and uh, would love to stay in touch and be helpful any way that I can. Well, let's let's do this. When the plan, one way or another, comes out and, and there's a vote, let's have you back, all right? Would love to do that. Yeah, happy to do so. That'd be great. All right, Nick. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm Alex Garrett, where we're always adapting. We want to adapt as the climate's adapting to whatever it's going through. We want to be there to support our environment but not tax everybody through the roof to do it, right? So that's where we stand on that. Alex Garrett Podcasting, we'll talk to you soon.